This is the A. I'm Reg Clay. And Norman G. This is the A, where we talk about life in the theater and the theater of life. Yeah! <laughs> As always, we want to thank Central Works for sponsoring the A. Central Works, a new play theater, headed up by Gary Graves and Jan Zweifler. Central Works, reinventing theater one play at a time. And as always, we want to thank really good at saying that. Yeah, oh, hey, practice. I've only said it like, what, 15, 20 times. (laughs) (laughs) In any case, uh, yes, we want to thank Central Works for sponsoring us and our wonderful consulting producer, Mallory Samara. Uh, for everything that she does for the yay. And we have a fantastic guest as we round up our Pride Week. Well, we have one more week. Sean Owens. Hello. How are you? <laughs> Quite well. I'm very happy to be here with both of you. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. We get like half a week. We get half a week more of Pride. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a shame that Pride Week has to share with Juneteenth and, you know, there are other things uh, going on as well. You know, Pride it's, should have It's its sort own. of a shame that either of those things are restricted to a day or a month at all. Maybe right. they should be year round. I don't, I'm just going to throw that out there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, Sean Owens, you are the head writer of Pride Inside. It's the sketch comedy show that's streaming right now on... Um, Killing My Lobster. That's right. Uh, it, you guys had your opening on June the 25th. That was yesterday. Mm-hmm. And uh, you have today. And then uh, it won't be live tomorrow. But right. there is a, a thing. Streaming. Yeah, tomorrow will be a full day stream so people can watch it anytime they want. Uh, we call it the the Pride Run. Sunday Hangover Show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because there's no, there's no telling when you'll need that little uh you know 40 minutes of uplift a little sketch comedy to get you back in the swing of things into pride weekend yeah yeah there you go well only three days i mean i would think it would be a lot longer but uh, it should be fun to to watch that and uh as i begin our podcast each week norman how was your week best thing that happened this week is and and this is definitely a public service announcement community service I got a, a fat ticket near the Golden Gate Bridge. And uh, I'm like, I'm not giving you people all this money. So I went in and asked for community service. They said I could do it. I said, I live in Oakland. This was in Marin, right? Marin County. And they said, oh, no problem. And they were going to transfer me over. Well, COVID. I go down to the courthouse. They won't even let you in. The guy, I said, I need to go up to Project 22. He's like, doesn't exist anymore. I'm like, what? Gave me some numbers. Sure enough, I call the first number. It's disconnected. Call the second number. It goes to voicemail. No, you know. So I scrambled with that. And I eventually called Marin back. Got the same hassle. The numbers worked, but I kept just getting bumped into voicemail. Finally, I get a human being. And she says, just fill out the paperwork. (laughs) I'm like, yes. So Central Works, our, our sponsor, um, I guess technically that means I shouldn't have been able to do community service for them, but I am volunteering 10 hours for them. They signed the paperwork. I turned the paperwork in. It was so easy. I walked up, the lady took my paperwork, turned to her computer, got a stamp out, stamped the date on it, typed something, gave me a receipt. Like, how, much, how much would you have paid? How much, how big was the ticket? The fine was two thirty nine. dollars The, um, then it's $50 processing fee. Mm, and then if mm, I want to keep mm. it off my insurance, uh, traffic school is another $50. So, you know, they were going to get almost $400 out of me. And I'm like, no. Yeah, no. that's a racket on itself. Well, I'm glad Norm, you avoided that. Yeah. Norman, I hope you've learned an important lesson about public nudity. 
and uh, try, to, try to keep the package under exactly wraps. stop <laughs> stripping man stop yeah it. hey i get paid for that that's yeah, that's true. Right. <laughs> especially that's right, near the golden gate bridge that's why we get that kind of tourism over from <laughs> why not a peep show uh there's been some interesting current events uh, especially with pride month carl nasib do you guys know who carl nasib is are you guys football fans at all Oh, yes. Are you ready for some gay football? Carlin Seep has, uh, and now he is the openly, he is the first active player who is openly gay. There have been a couple of guys who waited until they were retired. And of course, we know the Michael Sam story, which I think is a rather sad story. You know, he was drafted, and then he was sort of let go. And no one knows, you know, what's happening with Michael Sam. No, but I'm going to see about the Raiders, the Las Vegas Raiders. Uh, he... I know. I was going to get all happy. And that's, wait a minute. That's not our team anymore. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> Sean, do you have any thoughts about that at all? Um, I would love to see. I would love to see um, queer, like not just not just more uh, players being comfortable being queer in football, but I would love to see a queer infusion because I think, you know, frankly, Football is based on pageantry, but it's such sad pageantry in a way. It's all still based on, you know, it, it should look a little bit more like what it is, which is a coliseum sport. I want to get right. these outfits back to their sort of gladiator <laughs> roots. And a little bit more a little bit more gold on the helmet and the boots is what I'm looking forward to. There you so. go. And you might and you imagine, you know, those skirmishes where, you know, they're uh, grabbing the ball and they're, you know, huddle up with one another. You think that would be more prone to <laughs> that's right now they now that can all feel a little friendlier it doesn't have to feel so adversarial it's exactly just working things out <laughs> and also we were talking off mic uh the white house the very first um pride uh summit i guess what do they call it um biden says pride is back in the white house back i don't know when it was even there I, yeah. well it's always <laughs> been there it's just been in the closet yeah yeah, yeah, yeah i yeah, think that, maybe he was referring to eleanor roosevelt Oh, you're absolutely right. The colors are great. If you've seen the photos of the hallways, I mean, I saw the front of the building and that was cool. But then inside the hallways, all done up rainbow. I was like, oh, that was amazing. You know, I'm I'm a history buff. So there are rumors that Grant may have been gay and James Buchanan. He was the first person to not marry who was the president, 15th president. So you never know. Um, But yeah, uh, key. Buttigieg, Pete Buttigieg, you know, he had a wonderful speech where he talked about. No, I miss that. Yeah, he talked about Matthew Shepard and just, you know, having to, um, you know, witness all of these uh, events, you know, in the 90s or whatever. And now to, you know, it seems like we've come full circle where uh, now um, being gay or being LGBTQ is being normalized. And yes. uh, if the White House is normalizing it, then hopefully the rest of America and the world will normalize it. Hopefully. That's exactly right. Reg, Reg uh, you made an excellent point that like these things are just being acknowledged. It's not that it's not that there's an official stamp on them even. It's just that the country is already celebrating and has accepted these things. So why like like Juneteenth, it, it makes sense because the country is already doing this. And at last we have an administration that's like, I guess you guys set the standard for what we do in this country. I guess that's what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. And of course, this could not have happened if uh, if Biden didn't have, you know, didn't win over Trump. I just wonder, you know, none of this would have happened if uh, Trump had gotten a second term. So, you know, good things, ha- good things happen to, for those who <laughs> who persevere and fight. Well, and the anniversary, um, the um, 
the 28th is the anniversary of Stonewall, the Stonewall hmm. uh, riots. Oh, there you go. Yeah, two days from now. Yeah, yeah. It's important to remember. All right. With that, Sean Owens, um, we love to talk about killing our lobster and uh, the work that you've done there. Killing my lobster. I'm sorry. Um, but it's all of our lobsters, Reg. It's everyone's <laughs> lobster. There you go. Tell us an origin story. How did you get involved in theater? Or where were you born and raised? Oh, my gosh. So I am from a sleepy little town called Sacramento, California. You yeah. may have heard of it. Um, I put it on the map, really. Uh, I came here in 1986 and stepped out of the car, breathed my first breath of San Francisco foggy air, and I was, I'm home. I, I literally, I had never felt that good. Uh, I was an allergic kid. I was, I was a very sick kid, allergic to everything. And the first breath of air, I was like, oh, I think I'm going to live. I can start making plans for like, you know, maybe making it to 30. And so uh, I literally sort of had a regenesis when I came to San Francisco. I came to San Francisco State, got involved in the theater arts department there. Yep, that's where we met. That's exactly right. Long ago in those hallways. And Norman, you have always been an unstoppable force and kind of an <laughs> undefinable one. Like. I, I <laughs> yeah, you cross disciplinary before that was really a thing and embracing all the, all the parts of the art form that other people were really sort of eager to be like, oh, I don't know if clown really belongs in this world. And I don't know, Norman just seems so outside of other things. And so of course, Norman and I appreciated each other from an early age because uh, that's I'm I'm hoping we get to dig into that more. I want to I want to continue in the origin story, but I really want to dig into that more because there's a way where we both sort of left school and you come out of a theater program and you know most people are going to go up and be bankers or whatever and they're done. Yeah. And not only were we not done, but we plotted our own course. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yes, I'm this is one of those things where it's like I feel like maybe Norman and I are sort of like the the five and the 101. Like we took very different routes to get to a similar location because here we are now. Mm -hmm. And for 30 years, our paths have not intersected as much as you would think. Uh, yeah, almost never. Mm -hmm. It's so funny. We admire each other's work. We see each other's work. We're familiar with each other, but you would think just by virtue of who we are and the kind of work we do, we would get thrown into the same pot. But maybe there's only room for one Norman G in this town. And I just have to step back and wait my damn turn. They're like, yeah, yeah, if we can't get Norman, I think I have another number we can call. Here's a question for the both of you. Do you think that theater was a lot more experimental or more, um, I don't know, rebel-like back in the 80s uh, more than it is now? What I remember about coming right out of school. Well, one of the wonderful things was that of course, when you stay in a town where you've studied theater, you still have all of those friends and allies working in the same town and they have your shared vocabulary. So if you need to put something up over a weekend, you can go, okay, remember that cabaret thing we did? We're gonna do something like that, only it's based on this book. And we've right. got, you know, that person writing songs. So it'll be good and people will just jump in. So that's what I remember was sort of this, what I called pain in the ass, seat of the pants theater, because you could just make. And there weren't, there, the, the, 
there wasn't as much jurisdiction around it. People didn't want to see a, they didn't want to see a, a synopsis and and a three page outline of the work. They just wanted you to make, and it was happening in weird places. I don't know the weirdest place you worked, Norman. I have <laughs> under many. the freeway in a dumpster. <laughs> well, okay, maybe you be. I mean, Thrill Peddlers has its place. No, I, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. The uh, yeah, there were there were crazy. I remember like back of welding shops. I yes, I yes. performed on a bar stool on top of rusty sheet metal. Yeah. Once uh, I did a Beckett play in which I had play, to run uh, my own lights. Was that that Berkeley space? It was. Um, no, it was down near. Um, it was called Dance House and. Oh. Uh, Jillian Chadsey and her brother ran it. And it was, yeah, it was down near, down near the, you know, the kind of dog patch area, which I still don't acknowledge as an official part of the city because it wasn't here when I got here. Well, and it's now it's all gentrified. So forget it, forget yeah. it. No, those spaces are gone. Yeah. And I imagine money was not an issue back then. You could easily rent a space or, you know. Well, you, we didn't have any. So it was absolutely not an issue. Yeah. I, I, I performed in a lot of, spaces that like when you asked questions people were like i have the keys don't worry about it right mm -hmm. I, that became I, regular I, I remember lots of times where that was basically the deal either somebody would let you in or you got to have somebody walk you in and you got yeah. the space getting I, an audience I, was always tricky in those places but yes this is the thing i can't believe right now we have we have the internet we have everybody being bombarded you can get a message across the world by with a click of a key and yeah. i remember like putting xerox flyers up on phone poles and thinking yeah. this is gonna pull them in and it did that was the amazing thing was you were like you saw that you saw that piece but yeah, that's, also that's 80s that is the 80s theater there was just so many little things happening and people were going i remember standing out on the street in a line to slowly eventually get led into a space, tiny little space. You see this show where you could almost spit and hit the actor. And no, you could spit and hit the actor. I was gonna say, and I was often the actor that was getting spit on. So. <laughs> well, I know in New I'm, I'm sorry, I, I was just gonna say in New York, there's the Village Voice and all these little uh, teeny weeny papers. I'm sure in San Francisco, they had the same thing where you could put a little ad or something like that. There was different things, yeah. Mm -hmm. I remember there was um, there was a paper that used to come in the mornings for free. I don't remember what it was called, Norman. It was like like the Independent, I think, is maybe oh, what it's uh -huh. called. Yeah. And uh, I used to think all the time, like God, if only I could get a show on the cover of the Independent, boy, it would be on every doorstop in America. And I had that experience where, like, it was like a terrible headshot of me. Uh, with a terrible background, like badly superimposed. And it was on every doorstop in America. And the next day it was in every gutter in San Francisco. And I was like, there is, there's, there's a theater career in a nutshell <laughs> is you're, you're literally, you're like everybody's, everybody's wake up, uh, you're uh, reading. And then the next day you are pulp. <laughs> One question for you, Sean, do you see yourself more as a writer or as an actor or as a comedian? Hmm. That's a really uh, that's a really good question. The things I say are comedic. The things I write tend to be uh, comedic as well. But I think 
when I when I write is because I'm trying to scratch an itch I can't get to uh, just running my yap or or uh, or performing in somebody else's work. So my writing I think is meant to contribute more to sort of the architecture of theater, if that makes sense. I'm trying to push an envelope. I mean, I guess we we all are, most writers are, but I really want to kind of contribute, push, move forward the conversation about theater and how theater gets made. So when I, when I write something, it's because I'm looking to challenge not just myself um, and, and please my own needs, but I'm really trying to uh, step the conversation forward. For many years, for me, that was writing um, female roles, roles for female voices, um, whether whether those being performed by female actor, female identified actors, um, or drag queens, or myself. In any case, I was very interested in putting more women's voices into theater, and that's certainly continued. But. Um, yeah, it reminds me so much of a women's will. Who I forget the uh, the person that we brought on for that. Erin Erin Merritt. Erin Merritt. That's right. Yeah, she focused on uh, that as well. Yeah, and the reason why I'd asked Sean because a lot of comedians they really want to just be on state. They want to be sort of in the limelight. Um, but then there are writers who are like, you know what? It doesn't matter. I'll write the script, give it to somebody else, and it's still my work. And it sounds like you have more of a message where you know it's not like, hey, all lights on me. You know, sometimes they say that comedians can be a bit narcissistic or a bit you know, egocentric, and it doesn't sound like that applies to you. Oh, I, I think that's unfair. I think, I think uh, sometimes is really not necessary in that sentence. Um, no, I think, ego, I, think, I think comedians by nature have to have not only tremendous ego, but you have to, you're a social critic, right? If you're gonna make a joke about something, it's because you have a viewpoint that you genuinely believe in and you're using that, you're using that to sort of undermine or, or rub away at a, a kind of a hypocrisy in society. So I, it's a, it's a incredibly valid art form, but it does come with, you have to be fully loaded. You have to be fully armored, I guess I would say. Um, the great thing about comedy writers is that they're completely the other way around. If they're not the ones delivering it, we get to be as tender and as neurotic as you can possibly imagine, because we're not, we're not, we, we, you know, we get to hand that off to actors and have them go out and say right. the, the words. Nice. How did you get with Killing My Lobster? Cause that's, I will tell you, I, I remember Killing My Lobster, I think in one of their early iterations and, and they were just, you know, they were kind of a wannabe Saturday Night Live, kind of a, um, you know, just the, the crudest humor possible. And somewhere along the line, they suddenly started to really focus on real writers. <laughs> and that dynamic shifted. Yes, I remember when, um, I mean, I believe Peter Nachtrieb was part of that clan for from an early uh, incarnation. But I think Killing so, My yeah. Lobster, yes, Killing My Lobster's been in the Bay Area for 25 years or a little mm. better at this point. Um, I only came on into the fold six years ago, but if you're talking about origin stories, 25 years ago, yep. I had a rival, in my mind, a rival sketch comedy group that wow. had been started by shotgun players. Yes. 
shotgun players uh, came to uh, this little group of group of us and said, if you'd like to write something, we have a slot in the basement of Laval's subterranean under the pizza place mm-hmm. over in, you guys all know Laval's. Oh yeah. And just uh, off of campus, just off Cal, yeah. <laughs> right, and you can have anything from our old costume inventory. So we literally, before we ever wrote a single sketch, we went and dug through the costumes and all got dressed up and went, okay, I think this character's name is Professor Diebels and they're a, a roller skating muskrat who never speaks. Okay, great, Professor Diebels will write a sketch. There's a giant crab costume, great. Cra- giant crab sketch is in the hopper. We started that and we learned that what we were bringing to sketch comedy that was unheard of was we were all actors. So A, we believed in completely committing. It wasn't that kind of, you know, write, some comedy writers are just there to deliver the bits. They're like, oh, I wrote this great joke. And I, I no, we were really interested in the character, the mm-hmm. through line, the callbacks, how it worked as, a, as an art form, how it worked as a storytelling practice. So we developed a following that was very unlike other sketch comedians. Mm-hmm. But along, sitting on the horizon, our our Moby Dick was killing my lobster. It was always yeah. there, looming over us, doing better than us, getting bigger audiences. And we, you know, sort of quietly resented them until we found out that they thought very well of us. Uh-huh. And that and that when they couldn't take a gig, sometimes somebody from Killing My Lobster would be like, hey, do you guys want this thing? And we we're like, Oh no, they're nice. <laughs> it was can't it was hate so them anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, enemies no longer. And then uh, about six years ago, um, the company really changed. It had started as what can what is jokingly referred to in, as six brown guys. It was not. It was six guys from Brown University. Right. It was like wow. six the whitest, straightest guys you can imagine writing comedy together and drinking as much beer as they possibly could. And Sounds it like had that boys. patina. Yeah, and it had that patina. And slowly women came in and said, first, you have to clean up this office. And also <laughs> you're not the only ones who can write comedy. I think there need to be more perspectives. And so Killing My Lobster has grown up in the time oh, yeah. I have been there so much. It's so much more, uh, it's a product of its time in the same way that, Really, if you look at Saturday Night Live from 25 years ago, there was a lot of punching below the belt. And yeah, a lot yeah. of kind of off, kind of off-color uh, comedy happening yeah, there yeah. as well. And we just kind of grew up as a culture. Yeah, yeah, I hey, agree. Um, I remember from Venue Nine is where I first saw Killing My Lobster. Wow. And so when we get to the Peter Nottrib play, mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, oh, they're they're doing a play. They're doing a whole play. Oh my God. And it so clearly came from those roots, but had something to say, solid acting, it was gorgeous. Yes, that was, I think that was Hunter Gatherers, am I Yes, yep, yep, yep. And and one of the amazing things is that my checks still come from something called Lobster Theater Project. So it never stops, it never stopped in its heart being about actors and writers, which is one of the things I love is that, Killing Me Lobster pays every one of its performers and it puts more value, I would say, on the writing process than most 
most playwriting programs I know, like the, the, right. the, the sacred space given to it, the amount of time allowed for development proportionate to what we do. We yeah. get, we get, we get like four weeks to write a show that goes up for a month. Right. So think about that. If, if every show that ran for a year got a year to develop, you know, those sorts of things. <laughs> and, and if writing was, was valued equal to the, to the rehearsal process and all of those people got paid equally, it's, yeah. it's really a pretty glorious thing. Yeah, yeah, and that, that's awesome. I mean, there are a lot of companies where you don't see that at all. Either the actors right. aren't getting paid or the writers aren't getting paid. And there's such a short time to, you know, develop the stuff. So it sounds like Killing the Lobster. And it's interesting that you mentioned, when I think about, and that's why I mentioned the frat boy, you know, so much of the comedy, the sketch comedy, are written by heterosexual white men who has this sort of frat boy mentality as if, you know, they're still in college and you get that type of humor, which uh, who knows, it may be funny, but it's really limited to a very limited yeah. audience. And you really need, you know, more writers and people of color and the LGBT community to give a type of humor. And we're seeing it, you know, with Tiffany Haddad, I think that's her name, mm -hmm. and uh, a bunch of other writers in, in television, really uh, giving another perspective on it's what comedy so, should be. It's so refreshing. And what's so beautiful to see is that it doesn't just change what you're laughing about. It literally changes the cadence of humor because, mm -hmm. because other cultures can be so much gentler. They can get at it in so many different ways or they can be pointed without the kind of colonialist angle on it where it's like, I've now planted my flag and this is what I think about it. And it's all anyone's gonna think forever. Yeah. You know, there well, like are, you said, go ahead. Go ahead. There no, continue to be like more you... and more specific, uh, yeah. perspectives contributing to the to the to the conversation. And I think no matter what, no matter what the art form is, when you get um, when it goes outside of its mm -hmm. of its uh, base yeah. and yeah. reaches across, and people go. Oh, I like that. I mean, I think people understand comedy so much better than they used to because of the internet. Now people are making, they're making right. short films. Yep. TikTok is, is mostly comedy. Yeah, and it's yeah. mostly people cooking that in their own home. And I'm so perversely proud that that's the, the moment we live in. <sighs> no, I was gonna say, it was something you touched on earlier, the, um that need of having the audience and figuring out your timing so that you know you're throwing something out there that people may not expect. Being able to give it that time and knowing as a writer, that's what I'm doing to the audience so that your timing supports that. Yes. It's just gorgeous. When people walk out of that experience, they kind of go, the world is just a little bit different now than it was when I walked in. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think we do. That's one of the great things that um, that comedy allows is it is it does it actually sort of sharpens your perspective or it dilates your eyes sort of like an optometrist visit. Right. A little more light comes in than it ever used to. You right. just because of partially because of the endorphin rush and uh, all the, the positivity that you get out of that, which is also why a, why bad comedy really feels like you know it's like it's like a dry thanksgiving turkey it's cringy it's very very cringy yeah we're all gonna eat that together for as many weeks <laughs> as it takes oh 
when did you know, Sean, that this was the, your thing, this was your gift, that you were not going to, you know, do the Dilbert job, you know, work at an office, but, you know, this is your thing? Oh, my gosh. Well, I think every employer I had while I was trying to make it uh, couldn't wait for me to quit and go go <laughs> finally pursue my dream because I must have been an absolute nuisance to have around in a corporate environment. I mean, I... I don't stop talking like this. I don't stop talking about comedy and I don't stop trying to make people laugh. And sometimes that's great. Like they loved me in hospitality. They loved me less in the law firm mailroom. <laughs> right. <laughs> so there were places where they didn't, they didn't want uh, what I had to offer, but um, I was writing comedy. I think my family grew up writing sketches as a form of entertainment at parties. So oh. we would actually put on little sketches. And I remember an early memory was sitting under a table listening to my mother and her brother and some of the other members of the family punching up a joke, like uh -huh. polishing it and refining what the punchline could be. It wasn't just, oh, well, that made everybody laugh. Let's move on. They were actually like, I think that can be a little better. And that's when I saw you know, sort of like falling in love with anything, cooking or painting, mm -hmm. anything that you suddenly see, not just as a product, but a beautiful practice. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, comedy can be a really beautiful practice. And I've never given that up. Were you one of the uh, the Bill P Peters kids? I, I sure point? was. I, I owe, as a matter of fact, I've often said, I got a gorgeous uh, education at San Francisco State and his name was Bill Peters. Yeah. Like I, I almost don't remember any other my teachers, I mean, I, I had other teachers and certainly, right. certainly, I certainly got scolded by some people. Those are those names I remember. <laughs> but Bill was the only person who no matter what I did, it was like, yeah, keep keep going with that. Go a little further. Mm -hmm. um, I, yeah, I have to admit, I, I'm, I'm a bit jealous when I was there because I came in as a transfer student. And by the time the department had any idea who I was, I was getting ready to leave. So that was when Bill Peters approached me. And I got to do brown bag finally, only it was the year that Bill Peters didn't do it. And I was like, oh, come on. No. That is tragic because that really is a, it's like, it's like whether you were in the Peter Brooks black turtleneck exactly. production of the Scottish play or whether mm -hmm. you were in every other derivative turtleneck <laughs> Shakespeare that ever happened after that like Bill right. had the magic touch and you knew why you were doing things yep. when you were doing them and then we'd all go off and try to imitate him and go god this made so much sense when Bill was doing it right right but he no, was always I, on to I the remember next seeing thing. a few projects coming off of campus and going oh not as easy when you're not in that safe environment <laughs> I'm trying to remember Norm did you work on that Moby Dick that that Bill I didn't did? I was I was just finishing up as that happened. I think that was maybe my last year. This and that was what I things. saw. I saw it off campus. It was not as good off campus as it was on campus. Right. And this is one of those things, like when you talk, Reg, when you ask that question, like, was theater weirder? Was it more experimental? The idea of an adaptation of Moby Dick done by clowns was a Bill Peters original. Mm -hmm. And in its day, it seemed both unbelievably audacious and also like, well, sure, why not? <laughs> and the funny thing is, while that still sounds like kind of a big goof, it 
it now sounds more in line. We understand all the parts of that. Right. People literally were like, I don't understand. Moby Dick is like four days long. You're not going to do it all at once. Right. And you're certainly not going to do it with clowns and maybe just everyone holding sticks. Yeah. That was also Bill's idea. By the right. way, it's not just clowns. It's clowns on a bare stage holding sticks. Yeah, yeah. There was there was nothing on that stage except you guys. That was amazing. Yeah. So there were so many happy, so many happy um, moments in there. And I, I've never let go of uh, one of the amazing things that Bill taught me was uh, called a moment between lines. And it was in his principles of directing. And it was just simply the fact that you can look anywhere in a script and you can say, okay, after that person says this line and before that person responds, what could possibly happen there? Mm-hmm. And I so love that. And it has changed. I don't think, I'd never thought of myself as a director. Mm-hmm. And I have slowly been, I've been put into that role for various things. You know, they're simply, when you self-produce, sometimes you end up being the one directing because right. you can't afford to hire anybody else. So you do it. Right. Or you, or you know, with a self-produced script, mm-hmm. I know it well enough that it'll be easier for me to do it than to translate it to somebody else's. Right, vision. right. What, what, so what was that again? A moment in, it was a, it was called a moment, moment between, between lines. lines. Yeah. I wrote a it down. Yeah. Reg is going to look for this every place. I want you to look for it every place you go now, Reg. Yeah. No, well, no, no. no. I mean, go, go ahead. ahead. Reg. No, no, no. Go ahead, Norman. I was just going to say, um, so I did. I, I'm seriously, when I say jealous, I was, I, I came out of that department going, God damn it. But I was doing shows outside, so it was easy for me to do. And I did walk away from the department just kind of going, what the fuck? What was that about? Then I started bumping into the people that I'd worked with. And I did go see people's projects. And that's when I started going, oh, shit. Um, I'm not the only one doing this. And there's a lot that I picked up (laughs) from that experience that I didn't appreciate at the time. I felt like I was getting crumbs at the time. And instead I'm walking out and going, wow, you know, suddenly I'm I'm like Jesus with the fish and the loaves. I'm like, hey, here's a meal. No, we can make a meal out of this. Bam. So when you talk about being in different venues and stuff, no problem. We're going to be, we got to figure out a couple of lights because we're literally under the freeway in a goddamn dumpster. (laughs) So we've got to have some lighting, but people can just sit. It'll be okay. We're going to make this work. And people who saw it, they were like, wow, this is so incredible. Like we, they acted as if we had built the freeway. Yes. This is what I, that's what I love is it. I mean, I love site specific work. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm working on a site specific piece right now um, with, a, with another company. I love still thrill ride mechanics, which is oh. uh, based out of the circus center. Uh-huh. Toby Moore, who you probably know, Norman. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I love site specific work. And I love the fact that it opens people up. They, they can't help, but see that, all theater is just based on opportunity. You can't help but suddenly see that when there is no door upstage left. Right. When you have to make those entrances happen. Um, I ran for the last couple of years before, right before the pandemic shut down um, uh, the venue, I was running a club night, not something I thought I would do, mm-hmm. start on at 50 years of age but when but right. the venue was like you should do something here and i think i think they were talking to me as a playwright like and i thought about it i thought well i could come in and i could put chairs at one end and shine lights at the other and we could 
turn one more beautiful space into a kind of tawdry black box theater because that's what a lot of people do it's like put on a play in here right i mean take this thing that's not a theater and make it a theater why Right. right so i threw a club night and i just used all my theater tools and we literally we never hung lights for any of it i handed all of my fellow performers flashlights uh-huh. mag lights and when someone was on stage your job was to run spot and the audience loved it because it was all uh stripped bare right so use the bill peters term you know if you can't hide it feature it uh mm-hmm. bill was one of the first people i ever saw that did a, a production of romeo and juliet where he pulled out the teasers and you saw you saw them run the rigging you saw uh-huh. them yeah, yeah. run off stage and lower their own balcony right yeah, which says, yeah, no, which that's says, it's it's we um, recently had a conversation. I think it was uh, yeah, yeah, it was on a panel for Play Cafe, uh, not Play Cafe. No, I, I did play Playground had a panel, and this is what you get for being talking. so promiscuous, Norman. Your your hands are in so many things you don't know when you said it. I, I right. I almost, but there were young people. Play Cafe doesn't have that many young people. <laughs> Playground does. And the young people were talking about devised theater. And I find, and I shut up for a big part of that conversation. And then I said, I, I just have to say, I don't really know another way to do theater. If you actually gave me a full on theater with all the support, all the bells and whistles, I, I've done it and it's been exciting to me, but it's a totally different animal from what I normally do. I wanna bring my audience into this space and give them the experience here. Yeah. And, and speaking of space, uh, I don't know if you guys know, but Dragon Theater, they, they're giving up their space. Uh, they no. are. Yeah, I got an email, uh, I don't know, two days ago or something like that. But it brings up an interesting thing. I mean, you know, it's what you horrible. say. Yeah, it's, it's, it's horrible, but it's what's going on. I mean, you can have all these ideas or, or you can say, well, we're going to have the traditional black box theater. And everyone's like, oh, geez, you know, here we go again. And you don't get the audience, and all of a sudden it's gone. But but um, you shut down for a year, so you don't have the money. <laughs> yeah, but Killing My Lobster, twenty five years. What do you think? Uh, what is the longevity? I mean, how does it keep going where I others have failed? One of the things I think that's so important is that uh, it is nomadic. It has been in a variety of venues, mm-hmm. um, but it's always had a it's always had a home base uh, at about 17th and Folsom, right across yep. the right spot, yep. a little upstairs office. And uh, I really, the, I think the thing that keeps it going, I have to give a mad shout out to Allison Page, the artistic director yep. of Killing My Lobster, a true visionary, a great boss, like one of the greatest you'll ever have, and. Um, a funny person herself who understands that who understands that um, it things have to be done lightly and with um, nuance in order to make them happen. So there's just been so much acceptance of ideas, and quite frankly, because uh, uh, we had somebody in charge who was like, um, "I am a woman. I'm going to bring more women aboard. I am not a person of color, but I am going to make it my mission." To create a diversity fellowship, I'm going to bring I'm going to bring more um, queer and POC people to the table because, quite frankly, comedy is lacking. And so, finding that I think that has br- has given us a whole new lease on life. Um, and we have not been saddled with 
you know, at times it was a blessing and a curse because you pay a lot to a rental space. Right, you, right. It's amazing how much of the budget just goes to like, oh, here yeah, are the yeah. keys and you can turn the lights on for yourself. Um, for those few hours that you're there. <laughs> right, right, exactly. But at the same time, we've never had to be, they've never had to be a landlord. And I think that's also a blessing because mm. I was a, I was playwright in residence for Exit Theater Company yeah, exit. Good old exit. Many years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they have, at one time, they had four venues running simultaneous. The space oh, that Cutting Ball now employs right. was originally called Exit on Taylor. Yeah. That's right. I remember we did our first production, I think 2001. It was The Marriage of Bet and Boo. Actually, oh 2002. Yeah. That's, I was going to say, the, the very first show in there was also 2001. Oh. Uh, I did two of my two of my biggest shows mm-hmm. happened in the exit in those two in the exit main stage and at exit on Taylor. Uh-huh. And the, the first show that ever went into exit on Taylor was called Gogol. And it was myself, uh, Dave Malloy, who's now a Broadway oh. composer and uh, a, a troupe called Banana Bag and Bodice, which was Jason Craig and Jessica Jelliff. Mm-hmm. More folks working in a very unconventional way. Their writing style was different. Their clowning style was was avant-garde. Um, and we came in in 2001 and put Gogol into that space. And the thing I remember is that the paint was so fresh, there was only one layer of it. So when you pulled up the spike tape, there was floor. <laughs> right. Wow. So I kept yeah. having to repaint every night. Every time we moved the spike tape, we had to repaint the floor. <laughs> no, but it just, you know, the success of uh, of Killing My Lobster just to survive because there's so many companies that just fold because they can't, you know, they, they don't have the money. And also with comedy, everyone has sort of has to be on the same page. I mean, everyone can be sort of be creative in, in its own within the piece. But here's a question for you, Sean, because I've always felt that comedy is so much more difficult than uh, drama because uh, everyone has their own little... Um, there's a bit of spontaneity. There's there's always spontaneity when it comes to theater. I mean, I'm sorry, when it comes to comedy. But um, what happens when one person is not on the same page where someone is like, okay, what is this person doing? Um, it just doesn't fit. Have you had those issues at all? You can definitely find that even sometimes just stylistically um, or the venue you play can support a certain kind of comedy and not be used to others. Um, Mm -hmm. I, because Norman and I have both played our share of like, you know, nightclub venues and things like that as well. I I had a play that went up at uh, the Oasis here in San Francisco. With the swimming Uh, pool. (laughs) Yes, exactly. The space that used to be the swimming pool. So this is, this was a, a gay, bathhouse at one time a big a swimming pool right Right. and then a bar and then they took out the pool it sat empty for 20 years and somebody went this is a theater it's (laughs) one of the it's one of the nicest venues in san francisco secretly because it's got gorgeous you know you've got bar service people at tables it's very refined beautiful proscenium some good some good theatrics and here's something theater listeners in the audience how many venues have you worked at where there's actually a bathroom in the dressing room? You don't have to go someplace else half in makeup to right. go take a piddle before you go on stage. Nothing like right. I'm going to cross through the audience and be like, hi, I'm not here. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, but but the Oasis is given to very high camp theatrics. They do, you know, they're the ones who produce like the Golden the, the Golden Girls in drag. Oh. Um, so to put <laughs> to put a legitimate show in that space, even with drag performers, was a very different thing. And I was doing an original musical with five drag performers and one um, self-identified lady. And I thought, this is, this is gonna be a challenge. And my producers were like, I think you need to camp it up a little. I think you need to play front. I think you need to be bigger. And I was like, I think I'm gonna reward people for paying attention. And mm -hmm. we're just gonna see how that goes. And it was so amazing because the second, you know, it's sort of like we teach people how to treat us. Yeah. And we yeah. set the tone in theater immediately with the smallest of cues. So the thing I decided to do was that as the director of the piece, I was, I was the writer, right? But as the director of the piece, I came as my drag alter ego, Cora Values. And Cora Values is a truck stop waitress in rectal Texas. Wow, there you go. Yes. <laughs> and so she sat everybody in that audience. She met them at the podium, took them mm -hmm. to their seats, wiped down the table and told them they were gonna have a nice time. And they did because that was the, the atmosphere we engendered. Oasis after that show started seating people with an actual host. It wasn't just here are your Yay. tickets, go get it for yourself. So you do, you, you, you enculture a theater by making theater in it. You can change the way a venue works by giving your culture to it. Yeah, and not playing to cliches, because you know you could have did exactly what the person told you to do, and you know, camp it up or whatever. But you know, you you made it yourself, and uh, you gave the audience something that they hadn't seen before. Yes, yes, and I, you know, for at least for the at least for the the time we were there, it was beautiful. And I do think that I do think that um, Oasis has distinguished itself because it's not it's not just um, uh, you know people in funny dresses doing funny voices at one end of a of a bar standing on top of the pool table this is it's a legitimate venue that puts on spectacular productions and i i just love the fact that san francisco has grown in its legitimacy as a theater town but it has not lost all of the strange from those 80s days mm -hmm. yeah there you go um talk to us about pride inside uh you guys opened yesterday you only it's only three days well two days live but yes. uh how how's it, it i know it's difficult doing it on camera because you're used to being on stage but how's it gone how's the audience reacted it's fantastic and just to be just to be totally articulate about it there it is a it is filmed comedy so we're not we're not performing it in a kind of a Zoom environment. They were filmed pieces. And in many cases, we, uh, we certainly used, we used a lot of green screen because we're still being very COVID conscious and protecting the, the performers. But we were also very lucky because some of us are and have been bubbled together since the beginning of this. Right. So a few of us are actually in little pods and we're able to make comedy together and then film it. There are a couple of pieces that are shot in my living room. And what's wonderful is it kind of has the perfect anarchic combination between 
a classic sketch show where it's something different every couple of seconds. You won't be bored. I promise you that <laughs> about Pride Inside. You will not be bored. It is 40 minutes of, of comedy and it is lean and tight and fast paced. And one of the things that I uh, so enjoyed was that um, it really is like almost like a film festival because of because we embraced the medium instead of being like, and now here's a blackout and some music, you know, the things we would normally do for a scene change or something. Mm -hmm. We were able to take people to so many different places, reach deeper into genre than you would normally. So we have a little piece of Tennessee Williams and we have some sort of early TV and we have um, news reports and, uh, and infomercials, it goes all over the place. So That's Pride Inside, cool. I'm really, really proud of it. It was directed yeah. brilliantly by Michael Phyllis. Um, I had an incredible uh, writing team. I was just so very, very proud of the project. Yeah, and we'll definitely be pushing it. We'll have a little link so that people can actually see it. Um, if they, we post, I uh, think about uh, two hours from now. So you know, maybe people will be able to see tonight's show, but also tomorrow, you know, you'll be streaming all day tomorrow. So uh, that'll be great. Uh, one last question for you, because we're uh, getting close to one o'clock. Where do you see yourself in the future? Do you see yourself, there are a lot of folks who are leaving San Francisco. There are some who are still holding on. Um, it sounds like you're satisfied. It sounds like you're not um, a frustrated actor or writer. It sounds like you're getting all that you need, but where do you see yourself in the future? Uh, well, you know, a little bit like uh, the kid I was when I stepped out of the car and got that first deep lungful and thought, I guess I can, I thought, I guess I'm gonna live and I can make some plans. Mm -hmm. I think I just hit that stride all over again. Like I did watch this city go through some hard times. I watched it do it two or three times, Norm and I are just like, we are, oh, you know, we're, we're gonna be, we're gonna be doing this like, we, we sound like we're at a VA hospital, Norman. We're like, I've seen the hard times. But I love looking at those people a little bit older and going, you're still doing it. Okay, cool. It. Well, I'm mm -hmm. gonna keep going for a while. <laughs> no, and 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 Norman, you were one of the first people with escape velocity out of San Francisco State. I think you and I have both gone and done things and then we keep coming back here because this is a great place to make. So yeah. to answer your question, Reg, I hope that this will always be the place I start making things. Of course, I love to travel. I love to tour my shows. I love going to New York. I, I've, loved, I've loved touring with productions in the past mm -hmm. and I hope to keep doing that as well. But I want to build things that when people see them, no, no matter where they see them in the world, they go, that came out of San Francisco. That Ooh, is yes. from a mindset that is distinct and unique. Oh, that's wonderful. So gentrification I, has, I was just going to ask, has gentrification, money has not, because a lot of people feel the same way, but they're like, hey, I just can't afford to stay here. Either I can't afford producing or I just can't afford the rent. But it sounds like you're doing okay. I am in a rent control department. I have what they call the golden handcuffs. Oh, I lucky you. I can't go anywhere, Red. Right. I am here. Uh, they're going to they're gonna drag me out of this apartment feet first. So I am... I still don't have any money. I am still the, the fiscal cockroach that I've always been. People talk about like, oh, the good times and the bad times. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, do, is there still, if there's still a light bulb in my refrigerator, I feel rich. Mm -hmm. So I am not, I'm not gonna be bothered by it. I, I know that money, it, that money and theater are almost antithetical to each other. That in some ways, the more you make, the more, that's just more to spend on the next thing. Yeah. Um, 
you know, the, one of the greatest lines a Broadway producer uh, ever said, um, came backstage after an out-of-town tryout and uh, the actor said, how'd we do tonight? And he said, great, we only lost 30,000. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. I'm sorry, um, Norman, I cut you off. No, you didn't. I was just laughing. <laughs> no, 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 no. That no, that's fantastic. Everyone should have that spirit. And I'm I'm looking forward to seeing um um Pride Inside. Killing my lobster. I, I, really I do have I do have one question, and that is because we most recently reconnected because of Playground. Yes. And I have always found it difficult that notion of the, the short, the 10 minute play, at least with Killing My Lobster, you can write a short and know that it's going to be, it's gonna have some life beyond that. But um, I, how do you, you know, how does that strike you? That, that notion of, hey, throw this thing out here next month. You know, you got a week, write this, bam, and then it's gone. <laughs> yes, well, so this is, the, this is the amazing thing is that I, I have more short plays than any other form in my, canon. I have something at this point like, I don't know, 50 short plays. Mm -hmm. But a short play is still about eight pages too long for Killing My Lobster. Oh. Killing My Lobster was like, the first time I brought in a five-page sketch, they were like, what a beautiful epic evening of entertainment. <laughs> what, a, what a beautiful Dickensian adaptation you've brought us. So, I had to scale way back, even from my ten-page experience. Right. But what I want to say about what I want to say about playground and the short play format, if you really want to get into yeah. this, yeah, 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 is that um, I think there are artists who will always thrive in an assignment with tight um, strictures around it. There are always yeah. those people who are going to really crack the nut and do exactly the work they were meant to do, probably mm. because they would do it no matter what they were doing. Right. I also think there are people who just, that that 10 pages is just somewhere in there they find the seed. And then yes. hopefully they go on and go, okay, now I know what I wanted to talk about. Now I'm gonna take that seed out of that, the, a page and a half out of that 10 pages. And now I'm gonna expand it into something really wonderful. Yeah, so yeah. I think it is, I think it can be a blessing. I think it can be uh, a burden for some people, but I think there's always something to be had, even on the level of like just the exercise, the rigor of it is yeah. so good for us as a community of writers. And then you are, you're so right, Norman, there is this incredible sort of, but what do I do with these things? Yes. So let me tell you what I did, which is that the first time I suddenly saw that my, my hard drive was just filling up with these short plays, yeah. I produced an evening of short plays. And then I wrote 10 more and I wrote, mm. I produced another evening of short plays. And it's kind of wonderful to have that, that experience uh, as a playwright to say, well, if I'm gonna have you here for an hour and a half, yeah. let me just go ahead and give you 10 perspectives in the place where maybe you would get one thought from another writer, let me give you 10. And maybe you'll see that my mind works in such a way that that all of these are making some sort of central point. So that's that's what I believe about short plays. No, that's it's wonderful. And it I've had to kind of accept that because at first it was just a, hey, are you working? No, I'm available, hire me. <clears throat> and then after a while it really became, what is this dynamic? And what are we doing? And then in the last couple of years, I'm having all these conversations with playwrights. And 
you know, and I had somebody call me a few months ago to say, I'm thinking about continuing in the writing pool. I don't know if I want to do that. And I'm like, well, that's part of what this is, is you get to a place with your craft that you can decide whether this is something you need to continue. It is a gorgeous place to, to have that challenge, to have that, to work that muscle. Once you feel like that muscle is doing just fine and you're bored, then Absolutely. you need to think I about think the next thing. I think throughout San Francisco, I think throughout theater history, there's been a lot of play development because there's tons of funding for play yeah. development and exactly. that's a product and we understand that. What is sometimes promised, but much harder to really uh, fulfill is playwright development. Yeah. And I, I, I'm, I'm guilty of it myself. I started uh, my theater company, which was only around for five whole years, a, a drop in the vast ocean of, uh, of theater history. But we tried something called the New Playwrights Program. And one of the goals was bring a playwright in, let them see all the parts of the rehearsal process. Don't, don't hide them away. Learn that the way you treat a living playwright is not to be like, drop off the script, we'll see you opening night. That is right. not, we only do that because we don't have the playwright there. We couldn't, we can't shake Shakespeare and be like, what were you saying in this part? You know, um, that has its own virtues and thank God they're brilliant directors who can, who can crack that nut. But I really believe in the playwright development is the next thing we need to see in our culture here in San yeah. Francisco, because we do create so much new work in yep. the Bay Area. No, yeah. I, I, it's exactly where I feel most fruitful right now. And I love it every now and then somebody says, so you're a writer. And I'm like, I am ironically not a writer. I teach writers. I work with writers. I work in development all the time. And I try to respect, I try to stay in my lane. <laughs> <laughs> and and thank you for it, because it's the only reason I get any work at all is when you, when Not they're like, well, Norman said, Norman said he had to stay in his lane. So we'll, we'll call, that, call that other person. What was your company? It was called Foul Play Productions. Yeah. And it started on such a lark. We were, uh, it was myself and Cameron Eng. We were at the Dark Room Theater. This Dark Room. We had Cheryl and Connolly on not too, not too long ago. Oh, my ago. God. Uh, Cheryl and I go all the way back to the beginning of the dark room days. Absolutely. We did many mm -hmm. a bad movie night together. Um, yes. And that was such a talk about a company that believed in saying yes. There was just no, no such thing as a bad idea. And right. so uh, Cameron and I set out to just produce this goofy little trio of plays that we were interested in. We we're going to do stage adaptations of three bad B movies. And they were B movies that literally started with a B. We were doing The Birds, The Bad Seed, and The Blob with a repertory cast, one and one set. It was the same set for all three shows because we right. couldn't, afford, couldn't afford to do any different. And, uh, and so I think Cameron actually said, we need a, a, a name for the poster. It looks really weird that there's no you know, production company at the top. Right. I said, just come up with something, Cameron. I don't care. And so it's like a foul play production. And then we continued to make work for another five years and mm -hmm. develop other people's work. In fact, it was the only time for five years, it was the only time for those five years that I wasn't uh, prolific as a playwright because I actually started thinking about 
nurturing other talent uh -huh. and, um, and creating and helping other people create their work. And from there I went on and now I'm teaching for Killing My Lobster. Like it really opened up a, a whole other side of me and I'm very grateful for that. That's right cool. on. No, that's awesome. And I totally agree with uh, developing playwrights. So many times a lot of playwrights, a company will say, oh, you've got a piece, you know, let's, let's, let's have it. And either they'll produce it and then that's it. Or they'll say, okay, well, thank you. And yeah, really, I mean, <clears throat> like uh, what Gary Graves is doing for the um, Berkeley Rep, mm -hmm. having a seminar where you actually bring in play playwrights with their plays, and it's developed for let's say I think it's uh, six weeks, yeah. and that's really really helpful. And we need more of that. Yeah. Um, so I and totally people, agree. You know, people say, "Well, uh... uh oh, oh, Fro he'll come back." I hope he'll come back. <laughs> He he was uh, buffering just a little bit, but oh, um, I see that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm sure he'll come back in. I bet he'll come back. In. Yeah, we it's a uh, 108, so I don't know oh, if we no. want to get into. Um, <clears throat> should we wait or should we get into birthdays? Um, we can do birthdays, and if he comes back in, then we'll pick it up where we were. All righty. Uh, birthdays. Um, so. I try not to do non-theater people, but uh, Jeffrey Labes is um, a pianist um, who now holds down Friday nights at the alley. And so that has just started back up and it happens to be his birthday today. <clears throat> so happy birthday, Jeff. Uh, Karen Criswell is somebody I worked with. It's the first time I had somebody take me into film. <clears throat> Um, doing stage work and, and working with video. And that was, we just made up a workshop and Karen was the person who got us doing that. And then she went to LA to start actually producing film. Uh, Keiko, Kiko, and messing up her name. Carrero is um, primarily known as the costumer for the mime, uh, the mime troupe, uh, but also performs and I think writes. Uh, Richard Jennings is somebody that we keep talking to because he runs the Musical Cafe, which is part of Play Cafe. That's right. Uh, gonna skip a couple of names that I think you might have. Nicholas Strub is somebody that I got to meet as an educator, as a teaching artist. And then I found out that he was one of the amazing clowns that the Bay Area has. People don't realize how much of theater is rooted in clowning. When you see somebody who wears both those hats, it's kind of incredible. Leslie Wagner's birthday is coming up this week. I haven't Yay. seen her. We did uh, Debbie Does Dallas together. Ah, yeah, she's incredible. Um, and then producers, we don't give enough credit to. Sachi Nagai Kabori is um, is uh, a producer of... Um, Welcome the, back, Sean. Welcome called? back. Thank We're you. just doing a few shout outs for birthdays. Um, Sachi is the mother of Ann Kabori. Yeah, and, no, I knew uh, there would be a connection. Ed Mm -hmm. What's I that? knew there would be. I knew there would be a connection. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but they're so wonderfully supportive. Um, Utopia—that's the name of the theater company. Um, and then one other non-theater person is Francesca Palazzolo Ochoa. I only knew her as Francesca Ochoa. She was my seventh-grade teacher, and she didn't directly me get me into theater, but she did. One of the English teachers wanted to do a Christmas play, and she said, "Well, I have a student," and bam, got me in. Um, another name that I think you'll have, so I'll skip that one. Jonathan Gonzalez, somebody worked with in the Bay Area when I first got when I got my first really well-paying theater job, or what passes for that in the Bay Area. 
uh, was with San Francisco State, uh, San Francisco State, San Francisco Shakespeare Festival. And uh, Jonathan was in the cast of Midsummer Night's Dream with me. Ed Decker, who runs the New Conservatory Theater, his birthday is coming up this week. Marissa Wolf, who was at cutting at Crowded Fire and is now up at the Portland Center stage. Uh, another name I think Ridge has. And then my final one is Robert Sicular. If you don't know Robert Sicular, you're missing out on one of the jewels of Bay Area Theater, one of the old men of Bay Area Theater who bounces all up and down the coast doing stuff. And when I hear that he is doing Dickens somewhere, I'm, I'm so excited because he is just such a strange bird in life that to bring that energy to Charles Dickens and Christmas Carol is kind of a wonderful thing. So that's my list of birthdays, Rich. And my quick list and uh, welcome back, Sean. We're just uh, doing birthdays and shout outs and then we'll do shows and then we'll say goodbye to you. Uh, my list is... Uh, quick well i don't know not so quick today's birthday arthur leo taylor so i went to duke ellington school of the arts for theater and one of the upperclassmen was arthur he was always available i always appreciate uh when you go to school it can be very very um unnerving especially if you are coming in as a uh from <clears throat> junior high school to high school i mean you know if for the first time and the upperclassmen were really really giving and arthur was one of those who was really giving his birthday is today he is i think 53 um, Christian Wilburn, we had him on as a guest. Actually, his birthday was the 24th. Right. That was uh, two days ago. Um, you mentioned Richard Jennings. Also on the 28th, Kari Moy, um, yep. a good friend of ours. I get that one. <laughs> and uh, he is, uh, he's, he's doing a fundraiser for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. So um, he's raised already $165 out of 200 so uh, please give if you have uh, some a little bit of money to give. Also on the 28th, Craig Souza, and we've had him on. He is an ex-Eastender. Yeah. Ex and uh, I remember he did a Tennessee Williams piece, one of my favorite times I've seen him on stage, The Death of Queens. I, I forget the title oh. of it. And we shall sing the songs of The Death of Queens. And um, in any case, he was just fantastic in that. Oh. Um, you mentioned Leslie Wagner. Um, also on the 29th is April Deutschley. Uh, we had her on. As a matter of fact, she participated in my little play, um, Judicial Process, um, held done by the, it was the Breck Project that we were involved in. And uh, she's fantastic. Also on the 29th, Stacey Cray. One of the best <clears throat> episodes that we've had of the A. Stacey talked about existentialism. She is a, uh, um, a musician. She is a musical writer, and uh, that's how I knew her. And she uh, worked on the piece on uh, Sartre. Mm. Love the struggle. Um, I've got a couple more. David Stein. We were talking about uh, Darkroom yep. Theater, one of the darkroomers, David Stein. And uh, mm -hmm. he and I are very good friends, and he's known all around, excellent actor and a good, great writer. And he is giving a donation on his birthday for, to Rocket Dog Rescue. And he's raised $60 for that. And uh, Don Monique Williams, how can I forget her? She is the associate um, artistic director for Aurora. And uh, she has directed me twice on stage, a magnificent director, um, just an all around wonderful person. And the last person, actually, uh, I wanna give a dedication to my biological mom. Her, She would have been, I believe her um, 60th birthday, no, not 60th, um, it would have been her 70th birthday today. Dude, you were going to make me feel bad. If you make me <laughs> older than your mom, I was going to hit you. Damn. Yeah, no, no, no. Uh, she, and I tell you, as you know, being involved in theater, you, you know, mentioned Bad Movie Night. 
some of the earliest memories I have of my mom is her dragging me to these weird B movies, horror movies like the Manitou and Squirm. And I have no idea why she would do it. And some wow. of these B movies were just really crap and, and outright funny. And she would drag me to these movies. I think she just didn't want to be alone. And, uh, you know, she was a single mom at the time mm -hmm. and it was just her and I. So a little shout out to uh, my um, departed biological mom. In any case, shows, uh, we're already pushing Pride Inside. Any other shows? I'm going to be Frederick Douglass on July 3rd. There you I go. Think, but, <laughs> wow. uh, but they won't give me a link, so I can't tell anybody where it is. It's, it's just your own thing, Norman. Uh, you're just, it's, it's just, uh, it's your own, like, great moments with Mr. Lincoln. You're just going to go into a room by yourself and be Frederick Douglass for a day. <clears throat> it's the third time I've been invited to do it, and I think both other times it canceled, so we'll see if it happens this time. I was going to ask you about Afro Solo. How, how did that go? It's still going. I mean, that was, this is where I hate about not doing theater. When you film something, we videotaped that in January. It just got released and I got a link. So that's what I gave you last week. I think that's link is still good. Vernon Medeiros did his solo piece. I directed it and filmed it. And then we fought with the producer about whether or not we needed to redo it. And I'm like, I am not a videographer. This is what you get. You were telling the guy to do it on his phone, please. No, I, I did better than that. And that's as good as it is. And it looks, and then uh, the tech guy, Kevin uh, Myrick, um, who works a lot with the African-American Shakespeare Company, um, did all this wonderful video production stuff. So it looks incredible. I, I look really good. Vernon looks great. So yeah, I think that's still available. Cool. Um, there are a couple of shows that I, uh, of course, we're going to push Pride Inside by Killing My Lobster. They have a live show today. And then the Brunch Hangover special will be tomorrow. And there's a link for that. Also, um, are we still pushing Pulp Sculpture, a series by Bill Bibbins? Is that still going on? You may as well, since we're going to have him as a guest. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Also, uh, What's in a Name? <clears throat> Theater versus doing that. It's streaming uh, July the 23rd through September the 1st. John Tracy is directing the show. He was a, a former guest on the Yay. Also, um, Cabrillo Stage is doing Circus and uh, my good friend, uh, Brenna Kimmerly will be in that show and she's gonna be a future guest on the Yay. And yeah. Brenna was in my little mini musical, uh, Nia. So that'll be July the 9th through the 11th. Also uh, still streaming, uh, Hold Me the Forgotten Way. Uh, About Face Theater, that is a one, a one piece of it. There's a series of pieces. Um, that are being done there. And one piece is being directed by Eli Sonny Orkiza. Um, oh, that's nice. streamed on June the 16th and it's, it, it'll be going on for the rest of this year. So we wanna push that. Um, Intimate Apparel, I don't think that's still going on. Janae Simon. Um, oh, is it done? I, it may still be streaming. You know what, I'm still gonna put the link up and um, if it's there, check it out. If right. not- And I was gonna ask about the, uh, the SF Playhouse show that if we have the link for that, aren't they? Or I hope they're still going. I, I feel bad. I haven't gotten off my butt to see anything yet. Yeah. <laughs> you know, speaking of Junae Simon, I want to throw out an uh, awesome theater company produced Ooh. a podcast called Six Things God Hates. Junae directed six different radio plays. I wrote one of them. Oh. Uh, a cast, a brilliant cast of five or six performers, really uh, a tight 
fun uh, uh, thing to listen to, uh, each based on a little passage from the Bible that lists the things that God supposedly hates, like a haughty look or <laughs> one who stirs up trouble in their community. So we each took a prompt and wrote these plays. They're great. Wow. I didn't know she directed. I didn't know she directed. See, Janine oh Simon. What a, what a, a multi-tool. What a threat. Yeah. To oh all God. of our to all of our employment, if Janae Simon was let off the leash, yeah, uh, none of us would work again. We would just no, all she, watch her. Um, she, she'd I be had, she'd be Frederick Douglass. I had um, an actress break her foot. Janae came in, and it was working with a playwright, and I knew my playwright, so I was nervous about what they would say. It's like first day with the script. I'm not. I'm taking notes, but I'm not giving you any notes. And my playwright kept his mouth shut. Thank God. Second rehearsal, she was just was like, okay, I'm glad I didn't say anything. <laughs> yeah, I was on stage with her. Uh, she was Elizabeth Keckley, and we did a Civil War Christmas. It was a, a period piece, a historical piece on Christmas, and she was just excellent. And I tell you, I've been begging her over and over again. You know, she, you know, she's brilliant, but she gets a little shy. And so I, you know, hopefully she'll be a guest Very on shy. the A. <laughs> All right. Uh, are we still pushing Begin the Begin, uh, Oakland I Theater Project? think so uh, i'm looking to see if i have dates on it that's right and it ends july the 3rd may the may the 20th okay. through july the 3rd yes. two other things uh shakes pod uh that opens up as a matter of fact it opens up today titus andronicus alan coin will be playing demetrius ah. we've been pushing that and that opens today um it will be streamed um also um Later on, August the 28th, Shakespeare will be doing Richard III, and that'll have Lamont Rigel as Richard III and Cynthia Lagazinski as the Duchess of York. And also, Quickfire Monologues, that's still going on. Um, yeah. A weekly prompt, writers will write monologues and actors will record them. And there's an email, quickfiremonologues at gmail.com if you want to be involved in that. Sean, other than uh, this show, Killing My Lobster, is there anything else that you're doing? You know, it's so funny. I... Yes, I have to, I always have to look around my apartment to see what, what the mess is in front of me. I feel like unless, unless the props are literally sitting in my living room waiting to be loaded in or loaded out, mm -hmm. I don't remember what I'm working on. Right. So I do have, I have plays in development. I, I have in my living room being as my coffee table, uh, a trunk full of props and costumes for a production that Poltergeist Theater uh, kind of spiritually commissioned uh, me for, which is called Gaslit. It's a retelling of the old uh, play and movie Gaslight. Right. And talk about a prescient thing for our times, sort of a, a queer retelling of um, what it means to be gaslit, to be to have power taken away and to be told that you are um, too weak or too weak-minded to, uh, to function in our society. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that's a, I'm hoping that uh, pops out and, and comes to life sometime before year's end. Um, I am also working with Toby Moore of Thrill Ride Mechanics on the development of Wonder World 2.0, which is a, a kind of an Alice in Wonderland uh, meets an underworld uh, spectacle. And it's really beautiful. Uh, imagine taking clown, as we were talking about before, and using it to explore loneliness and isolation and getting through. So it's very much in the spirit of what we've all just come through as a culture. Wow, oh, you gotta let us know when uh, that's gonna, um, you know, Poltergeist Theater's Gaslight, Gaslit and uh, Wonder World 2.0, let us know when that'll be, when it'll come to fruition and we'll push it. 
Yes, thank you so much. I appreciate Yay. it. Did you enjoy yourself, Sean? I enjoyed myself, and more importantly, I enjoyed both of you very, very much. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much. I love the conversation. I mean, just just the back and forth is just magnificent. Good, good podcasting. Yay! <laughs> All righty. Well, um, for those who are watching on YouTube, we are here. Please like and subscribe. Give us a thumbs up. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't like. Um, if there are subject matters that you want us to hit on, just let us know in the comments section. If you're listening to this on the traditional podcast, um, on that purple podcast app, if you have it on your iPhone or iPad, we are there. We're on Spotify. If you're an Android user, you can use the SoundCloud app or just go on soundcloud.com and you'll find us. The Yay was created by theater people for theater people. If you have a show you want to advertise or if you just want to advertise yourself, let us know. Hit us up on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. I'm at Red Space Clay. And I'm at Hoosier Hoosier and our page, our The Yay now has a Twitter page, uh, the, Ex Twitter, uh, the Yay 3. The Yay 3, the that's right. Um, thank you for remembering because I was like, we do have a uh, Yay thing, but yes. And I'm still Yay, figuring it out. Good God. <laughs> I, I'm trying to connect it up to an email address right now. And I tried it even today. So far, no luck, but I'm working on it. Yeah. Sean, do you have a, are you on social media? I am indeed. You can find me on Instagram, Sean Owens Playwright. Uh, I... Uh, can always come to my Facebook. I'm easy to find. I'm the usually the lat when you scroll through all the Sean Owens of the world. I'm the one that's in lavender almost consistently. So you won't you won't miss me. Did you say Twitter or Instagram? Oh, I'm on Instagram. Sorry, Sean Owens playwright. Um, yes, indeed. There you go. So if you folks are looking for a, a playwright and an actor, you can't go wrong with Sean Owens. And uh, please check out Killing My Lobster and uh, Pride Inside. All right, folks, uh, it is a wonderful day. I uh, hope everyone's enjoying themselves. And if you haven't been vaccinated, please get vaccinated so we can take these masks off and actually enjoy ourselves. In any case, as Norman and I always say, we, we got to find, find a, a better, better sign off. off. And we are out. Bye.